cricket is coming and it's time for a bat. We're going subs and bodies and we'll have a good laugh. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Get It Whacked, the Macclesfield Cricket Club podcast. Over the coming weeks and months, we intend to go behind the scenes of Mac CC and meet some of the players and characters at the club, find out some things about them you never knew or most likely never wanted to know, and above all, hopefully have a few laughs along the way. Macclesfield Cricket Club is grateful for the continued support of our various sponsors, Today's featured sponsor is John Griffiths Physiotherapy. John Griffiths Physiotherapy is a local physiotherapy company specialising in sports injuries and neck and back problems. They also offer a range of treatments such as medical acupuncture, chiropody podiatry, physiopilates, clinical hypnotherapy, cognitive behavioural therapy and sports massage. Please visit johngriffithsphysiotherapy.com for more information. Without further ado, I would like to introduce today's guest. This man is yet another of our Antipodean friends, having played for Macclesfield for two seasons between 2006 and 2007. To say he had an inconspicuous start to his Macclesfield career would be an understatement. He is a proud owner of several cricketing records, some of which you might not necessarily want, He's had a long professional career in Australia, most recently with a big run in the Big Bash League. It's the king of blonde highlights himself, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Evan Gulbis. Gobbler, how are you? Going very well, Miles. Great to hear your voice. Been listening to it for the last few podcasts and wrapped to be on. Excellent. And tell us how things in Australia at the moment. Pretty good. We're um, just starting to open up a lot of a lot of things due to the oh, since the COVID, I suppose. So we're allowed to get together in little small groups and things like that. Still got to stay at 1.5 away from each other, but it's all starting to progress soon. Hopefully the borders open up and there's a bit of travel. Like I know I, I live in a different state to where I actually play cricket. So um, that's going to be important for me next year. And do you want to tell us what you're doing when you're not playing cricket? Well, I'm a qualified teacher, but uh, due to flying in and out to play for Carlton as I'm coached there, so sort of looking after the program, uh, there, I spend three days a week normally in Melbourne. So basically, when I'm at home, I'm looking after my baby. So stay at home, Dad. Got the dream job there, and doing a couple of little building projects on the side. Fantastic. Um, moving on to some cricket, Goblet. What would you say your uh, your earliest cricketing memories are? I think my first cricketing memory that I really have is actually pretty cool. Um, it was my I think I was 12 and I started playing senior cricket and. I remember Dad batting with me. Um, it was the only time I ever played with Dad, and I still remember him at the non-strikers end walking down and saying, uh, get ready for a bouncer, and obviously it was a bouncer next ball and ducked it, and I still just remember that vividly because, you know, it was something that I held, you know, to high esteem that even on the cricket field, Dad was looking after me. Fantastic. Um, and what age do you think you were then? I would have been 12 at that stage, um, so that was my first year of senior cricket. I played two or three years of junior stuff before that, just in the under-12s. Basically, I was I played a lot more football. Dad was football side or AFL side of things, um, and then one of my friends at school brought me down to play a bit of cricket, and I always play cricket at home, but just not you know, competitively. Went along and, and did all right in my first few years. I think I won the batting average the first year out of both just slogging them over mid-wicket, which <laughs> seems to work in junior cricket. Seems to work a little bit in senior cricket too. But um, 
uh, anyway, so that was my sort of upbringing into cricket, and then obviously played with dad, which was great, and then um, moved on from there. And where did you where did you grow up and, and sort of play your, your junior cricket, and then getting into senior cricket? Yeah, so I played at Williamstown Cricket Club. Um, I went to school in that suburb, um, not far from where where I live. So played all my juniors there. Played a few a couple of years of seniors, um, a year in the fours, um, then sort of worked my way up the grades, and then when I was I think sixteen or seven. I moved to Carlton Cricket Club, which is where I am now um, with Rossi uh, and Parth has spent a bit of time there as well. So and and Chuck coached there. So a couple of Macclesfield greats. Um, there's another one, Ian Rigglesworth, Mickey Allen. Um, so yeah, plenty of guys have been through the Carlton Cricket Club, and um, obviously Jack Matson, who you, who you were going to have this season, um, was uh, is still there. So yeah, I made my way there and then played a few years and then. Um, headed overseas to Macclesfield. Well, you've you've lined up a few uh, bits of the podcast coming up nicely there, Evan, so it'll be good to mention a few of those names and faces uh, for, a, for a varying degree of reason, shall we say. But you've, you've also led us on nicely to my next question, which which is how, how did you come to be playing at Macclesfield um, and, and how did that come about? Well, basically, one of my really good mates um, had been over and played the goal car uh, the year before and he said, you're coming over. I can't even remember actually agreeing to coming to England. And I still can't remember agreeing to actually coming over the second time either, but it just seemed to happen. So um, I remember I was coming over and I was actually going to play for a team. I'm not sure where it was. It was either Birmingham or something like that. And then Chuck, who was the coach at the time, pretty much said, you're not playing there. You're going to play at Macclesfield. And I just said, okay, you know, worries. So um, Chuck, I was sort of in between ones and twos at the time and probably just trying to do everything I could to impress him. Um, there's still some funny stories about Chuck not liking my hairdos and things like that. And <laughs> he was looking for any excuse not to play me. So uh, I thought I'd better go to his home club and um, in England. And, you know, um, I'm very happy that I did because I had a great time and had some um, really good friends from being there. Well, you mentioned your uh, your hairstyles and, and certainly it's something I, I teed you up a little bit with in your introduction. Now, my next question is going to be what, what were your initial reactions to Macclesfield and meeting all the boys? But before we get there, I must just say that on your arrival, your uh, blonde highlight tips certainly caused uh, a few raised eyebrows from from what I'm led to believe. So, so yeah, with that in mind, what what were your reactions on on arriving in Mac and kind of as I say, meeting all the boys? The blonde tips was one of the better haircuts. I remember doing a preseason and having blue hair because I was trying to be like Kevin Peterson, and he had the blue skunk at one stage. Yeah, Chuck said to me, "If you've got that hair around one, you're not getting picked." So I had to dye it back brown. But yeah, I really enjoyed. Uh, obviously coming over to, to Macclesfield, the only thing I knew about it other than Chuck saying you're playing here was my auntie had actually Googled Macclesfield Cricket Club and the only thing that came up on the web at that stage was a review of the toilet at Macclesfield Cricket Club in the club rooms. So I knew exactly what the toilet was going to look like and you know how many rolls of paper are on the side and all those sort of things. But I had no idea about anything to do with cricket. So I think it got a 4.5 out of 5 rating. Um, and I actually got a, a, a T-shirt printed for me by my auntie, obviously a bit kooky, um, saying, all systems go, he's off to Mac. So, um, yeah, that's all I knew about Macclesfield on the way over. But obviously meeting, meeting the boys, I learned very quickly that you can't sip a pint. And I know a lot of the Aussies have that same 
learnings early doors when they get over there. You can't just sip on your beers like you can with a pot. Um, and because the beer is cold, you sip on it. Um, and I know Chuck talked about that as well. So yeah, you learn you learn that you've got a gulp and you've got to put it down with a bit of force. And uh, what was your adjustment from from pots to pints like? Oh, shit ass at first. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I, I found my way. Yeah, I suppose it was probably the same adjustment that it took to get used to the wickets over there as well. Yeah, well, this is this is you're leading me very nicely here. It's almost as if I've I've shared my questions with you, which for the rest world I haven't, and you can confirm that. Oh, okay, yep, yep, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, how did you find that adjustment from you know Australia to England? Was this the first time you you played in England? I assume you hadn't been over before. No, so yeah, of course it was my first time. What was weird was probably just like the way that the ball actually stops in the wicket it's not necessarily that they're slow it sort of stops and pops a little bit and we played on a couple of um, wet wickets early doors and I found that very tough obviously being a player that tends to play their shots um, I tend to hit the ball slightly in front of myself so that sort of became an issue but also I found that maybe half commitment and not and not actually taking the game on properly. Uh, properly, I remember getting told after my second game where I, I think I started with a duck, and I had one of the boys in the third grade telling me how to bat, um, and I found that a little bit a uh, little bit over the top. But I, I actually did get a decent score in the third game. But what people probably don't understand, I think I got off the mark with a six. So I don't think I really changed my ways. I think I just found a way to do it better. Yeah, interesting. Well, yet again, yeah, I, this is quite unbelievable. I don't know how you're doing it. The next thing I had down to ask you is, as I mentioned and alluded to in your introduction, you, you had uh, rather an, an inconspicuous start to your to your Mac career, which is something that parallels the, another portion of your career, which we'll get to. <laughs> but um, yeah, how, how how was that kind of in, <laughs> in initial start to your Mac career? Well, I suppose when you going over and you're the pro um the expectations are very high now i was always a, a match winning type of player um and generally when you're a match winner you're not very consistent um so probably learning how to score runs every week um was something that i had to get used to and i think that's the best thing that i got um going to macclesfield it actually taught me that if i don't make runs we probably lose um we had a very young side at, at that stage um the captain that year actually um it was jabber he did his knee i think it was leading up to the year and, and um yoz had to take over so you know we were already down a batter and we had guys like cal and path coming through and they were very young and um obviously inexperienced at senior level so you know for me to to probably grow up and i suppose living out of home for the first time you know i i, I think it really helped me you know become a man rather than a boy I'd like to kind of talk about your stats and things for Macclesfield. Unfortunately, um, they are not conclusive um, <laughs> and all-encompassing by any means, as, as unfortunately from, from the 2006 and 2000 seasons, um, we only have nine and eight games respectively. So as per play cricket, you've played 17 games, scored 741 runs with a high score of 109. However, obviously, we do know a little bit more about your stats, so I'm, I'm going to rely on you to to tell us a few bits and pieces but but what i do know is in your first year um i think after by your own admission a, a, a relatively poor start you scored 900 runs in your second year and your return you had a, a much more fruitful season and actually uh, you scored 1047 runs at an average of 104.7 which is still actually the third highest average on the Cheshire county cricket league 
website and you also won player of the season that year and something else that i sort of dug out with the with the help of barney was that between your first year and your second year you actually went on a run of 14 consecutive 50s um and obviously hearing you talk about having to to grow up and be a bit more mature and 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 not necessarily be the match winner i I don't think there's a better way of of explaining that to and putting that across uh but to score yeah 14 50s between the end of your first year and into your second year must have been a, a heck of an achievement and do you remember much about that well, I'll um I'll try and pretend I didn't know most of those stats, but um I actually didn't know much about the uh the average in the second year, but it's it's pretty cool. Look, I, I I think um the one thing that I found really tricky, especially the first year when we were such a young side, was I found that after I'd got a few scores, um most teams would put nine on the fence when I got to about ten. And when you're playing cricket with a, a lot of young guys who are still, you know, um, trying to find their way, I found it like I, I'd get one and over for a good 10, 10 overs and yeah, the scoreboard's not moving. Um, and, it, and it became really tricky. And I think that really progressed my learning of how to bat in different situations. I hadn't experienced that before uh, in Melbourne generally because you, you, you play an extended version of one day cricket and in Melbourne you, you have a ring. So you can only have five out after the power play um, and being an opening batter at that stage and batting and then batting at four in England, I found it really tricky to actually score runs the way that I'd normally score runs early because generally I'm a boundary hitter and the field would be up. Um, so I think, you know, learning those sort of things helped me become a lot more consistent. Yeah, look, 14, 50 pluses in a row is um, something pretty cool, I think. Um, just showed that, you know, I suppose I, I really respected what we were trying to do at the time and um, hopefully get up into to the Prem, which which we did in my second year, which was fantastic for the club. So, yeah, I just really enjoyed my time there. And as I said, like it, it did help me grow up as a, as a player. Mm. I think uh, the other thing I should point out is that in your second year, your you 1,047 runs, um, which obviously, as I said, was a, still uh, the third highest league, league average, that's just Saturday League cricket. Um, and again, unfortunately, I don't know what you scored on top of that, but I, I think I'm right in saying you had a bit of a run towards one of the T20 competitions. Was it the plate? Yeah, so we won the plate. Um, I don't know if it's the same back then. Uh, I, I, sorry, the same now as what it was back then. But um, we lost the first round of the T20 Cup and that puts you into the plate and then we won you know the best of the rest i suppose it was and um it was a pretty cool day um we played just before i think the game that was the actual cup um so yeah it was cool it was a big crowd um the club won something which was pretty cool and then obviously going forward for the rest of the year um i think it just made everyone believe that we could actually get the job done and and move up to the prem so Look, it was it was great to do that. Um, I think I got a few in the final and the semi. So you know, look, I played. I, I felt like I played my role, which was great. Um, and as I said, you know, everyone just became better players for the experience. Now, I'd like to mention a, a couple of games from from your time at Mac. Both of these have uh, sort of I've I've been helped a little bit with some information on them. The second game, which we'll come to in a second, is already uh, sort of infamous on the podcast. However, the first game I'd I'd like to talk about is actually your third game um, that you played against Bollington. Now, I'm I'm reliably informed this might be a good game to ask you about. Do you, have you got any any comment on this game? Well. Uh, yeah, uh, I suppose as 
Uh, as I alluded to earlier, I started with not many runs in the first couple of games. I was getting told, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that by every man and his dog. Um, and then it was actually what I what I I really found out what it was that I wasn't doing. And normally on a Friday night, I'd have a couple of beers and just relax and probably not think about the game so much. And the first two Friday nights in England, because I wanted to do so well, I didn't drink. So I pretty much said, oh, I'm not going to have a drink. And it didn't work. So I went out and had a couple of beers with the overseas pro for Bollington uh, the night before because I was living in Bollington at the church house. They, the locals thought that it was good for me to be drinking the night before the game. And it actually worked to my... Um, to my benefit because I still remember Tomo or Anthony Thomas at the time. I went toe to toe with him all night. I think we may have had a Bloody Mary in the morning just to keep it things equal. Um, and I outperformed him and I, I think I got 81 or 82, got a, maybe one or two wickets as well. So, and we got over the line against the locals. So it was a fantastic win. At the time, I think I was under so much pressure. I thought I'd just need to give myself a night where I uh, cannot think about cricket and Look, it worked on that occasion. Um, I don't like to say that it probably stayed the same way for the rest of my time at Max. So, yeah, um, Friday nights tended to be a very lonely, out-by-yourself night, but it tended to be a very fruitful one. <laughs> very good. The The second game, as I say, is aforementioned on the podcast already because it was, uh, it was a game in which Path got one of his many 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 90s and the way he describes his story is you were rather instrumental in ignoring a declaration which was made by the then captain mr barney cutbill in, in your second season in 2007 now as i understand it you, you must have been trying to get path to his hundred you know barney's up there on the on the side waving you in firstly t talk us through your thought process and and then secondly please describe this run out because Path tells a very different story, I believe, to the one you, you're going to. Well, I actually wanted to try and get a 150. I didn't care about Path, so I just thought, I oh, will stay out there a bit longer. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, well, basically what had happened, because of what had happened the year before, when not many of our younger guys and our, and our batters were making any runs, because we were much, much more of a bowling side with guys like Ronnie and Tate. A lot of our batters struggled, and Path absolutely banged him this day. I, I, I don't know how he was hitting sixes. He hit one almost onto the hospital, which I don't know what happened. He must have been playing on a very close wicket to that side. But <laughs> it ended up 99, and, and I think he I think he hit, might have hit 10 runs in the last over. So it wasn't like he just blocked them out too. Like he, he went really hard late, and I just remember standing there and going, there is no way we're coming in. You do not declare on a batter on 99 in this instance when we've got a young guy coming through. You want your batters to learn how to make hundreds. You can't just pull him in. Like the greater good of where this club's going, you need him to be a main player. So I just stood there and basically, without putting my finger up, just said, no, get stuffed. I'm staying out here with Park. Um, Barney was livid. Um, and I still remember walking in afterwards. He was livid still. But anyway, the incident, which what happened, obviously, we, we, we've got to play another over. And it might have cost us two points. We're going to play another over. And first ball, the over. They bring the field in for me, knowing that I'm going to try and get a single to get Parf on strike. And I basically get, oh, I can't remember the ball, but I remember I basically tried to glide it past Gully and I went straight to Gully. And Parf just took off. It was like he was Alan Donald or Lance Klusener in the 99 semi-final. 
And I'm just standing there going, what are you doing, mate? I've got four balls to get you on strike. You only got to face one ball. <laughs> um, and he just took off. And I just stood there going, and he ended up run out. And he would have got run out at the keeper's end because the keeper was up in stunts. Um, and I'm just sitting there going, what, like, it just showed me a lot about communicating with your batter at the other end because <laughs> even when you try and do the right thing, sometimes they can stuff it up for you. So, to be clear, you are putting the blame squarely on Tom Parfitt's chest. 100% on Tom Parfitt. Zero blame on me. He, as as per his podcast, he, he says that you sat on your bat and, you know, basically rotted him. Well, it's hard to sit on your bat when you're hitting the ball. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I'm being slightly inflammatory, but well, we'll we'll have to we'll have to agree that the truth lies somewhere between the two. But I have to say that your version of events does sound a little bit more plausible than his. But uh, no comment. <laughs> well, look, talking, um, you know, talking about your time in Macclesfield and 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 various bits of the career has has been great. But I think it'd be fair to to say that, as I said in 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 the introduction to the podcast, you know, you've you've played quite a bit of uh, cricket in Australia as well, including you know a good stint of professional cricket both in shield and and big big bash as i alluded to um so i just kind of wanted to talk firstly about what, what your journey was like to professional cricket in australia and, and how did that come about uh on the back of my second year at mac we uh, chuck finished up coaching and went to south australia um and we got a new coach peter divinudo which is michael's brother uh, Michael played for Australia and played a lot of cricket for Tasmania. My next year, I think when I came back, I made maybe 400s and then 500s the next season. And basically, Diva talking to his brother and, and the coach of Tassie at the time, Tim Coyle, sort of like got me over to Tasmania and I ended up on a, on a contract there and playing for the Hurricanes, which, you know, was fantastic. Like, um, I know Peter's one of my good mates um, and he really helped me, along with the stint at Mac, he really helped me become, I suppose, a man. Um, I was pr- probably very immature, as the boys know, um, and... You know, it helped me, you know, not only with my cricket, but actually finish my studies and all those sort of things. And you always hear people talk about having a well-rounded environment to perform well. Um, and he was fantastic at doing that for me. So um, obviously to palm me off to his brother at Tassie because he was the batting coach um, at the time. So I moved over there. But what probably happened early in my career at Tasmania was I didn't start very well with the bat, but I bowled pretty well. And I ended up playing most of my career as a bowling all-rounder or a bowler. So it's funny how those sort of things happen. I think maybe, you know, the learning that I got out of a batting side of things um, gave me a bit of an advantage when bowling to someone. Um, but, yeah, it was just um, it was an interesting way that, you know, I've lived a lot of different lives as a cricketer, um, not not just very um, linear as a lot of players get. Well, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, another slightly uh, inconspicuous start, shall we say, and, and this is one of <laughs> one of your records which you uh, which which you hold. And and to be fair, you did point this out to me, to your credit. Um, but I think it would be it would be good to to ask you about your debut for Tasmania. Which debut? I'm, I'm happy to talk about my one-day debut rather than my four-day debut. It's a little bit more beautiful of a story. You, you can tell us both because I definitely want to hear about your Shield debut, I'm afraid. No, well, I'll go with, I'll go with the good first. My one-day <laughs> debut, I actually I actually won player of the game. Like, I, um, 
I, I didn't start well again. And I must be a very poor starter. I ran George Bailey out, who was the captain when I was on North. So it didn't start very well. I got 20-odd. I'd had a really good preseason. So I got picked as a batter. I was batting at five. And ran George out, got 20-odd. And then we're playing at the Wacker, and they just gave me the ball. And out of nowhere, um, I just took four wickets for none. And the ball was swinging, and I bounced someone out. And everyone thought I was a bowler from then on. So I got the player of the game for that game. Uh, for my bowling, um, and then that sort of led into getting a uh, shield debut, which I'm a bit shy about talking, but that's all right. I, I took some wickets in that as well. I got Aaron Finch out with my first; he was my first wicket. Um, I got John Holland out, another Test player. You know, like, yeah. I bowled all right in that game. You certainly did. Uh, any anything about the batting? Uh, I may have started with a pair, and then. Backed it up the next week against the same team in a crossover game at the G with another pair. So I didn't um, didn't start very well with my batting. Um, funny fact: third game I played, which was a year later, because I, I actually had a um, I actually needed an elbow reconstruction when I played my first two games. And after the first two games, um, the coach said, "Look, you're probably going to get dropped if you don't get your reco. You probably won't get a contract next year." So that was a pretty simple. Um, simple thing to do but um, I made my way back in as a bowler and I actually got off the mark first ball against Michael Beer who I played a lot of grade cricket against in Melbourne he was playing for the WA and I backed away and I think I cut it from about outside leg stump uh, first ball so I should have probably been out anyway um, and it went for four and I remember Tom Triffitt my, my gloves were my gloves were sweaty I wanted to call for gloves already because I was shitting, shitting them um, and Trish said to me, even if you get out now, you average less than one. And I just remember that uh, I just went, oh, I've got a long way to get back to a decent decent record here. But um, what was even funnier was my sixth innings was another duck. So uh, five out of my first six innings were ducks. Well, you've, you've been a very, very good sport talking about, uh, you know, some of your <laughs> less, less uh, admirable achievements. Oh, I'll tell you what as well. The fourth one, the fourth duck, was an outswinger by Clint McKay, and I could not have swung any harder at it. I tried to hit it over cover, over the southern stand. It would have gone so far. I just thought nothing else is working. I'm just teeing off, and it didn't work either. I got the finest little nick to the keeper. Um, yeah, it was, it was, everyone was laughing about it, and even I, I laughed on the way off. The Vicks were laughing at me, and obviously being my home state, it meant a lot. Um, and I walked off the ground. I, I had to giggle. You either laugh or cry in those sort of, experiences don't you you do well as i said you know but you've been a good sport and uh you know we've had a bit of a, a bit of a laugh about you know a few of the ducks um i'm afraid to say i'm gonna have to switch it around and, and now mention a, a few pretty decent performances and achievements the first of which is i think you made the, the shield final with tasmania at one stage and and you, you had a pretty decent performance i think it's fair to say do you want to tell us about that oh look that was that was one of the highlights of my career that that um to win a shield well, we drew it, but we were the top team going into the Shield final, so we only had to draw. To be crowned champions of, you know, Shield cricket is unbelievable. And um, some of the people that I got to play with, unbelievable as well. So to have that crown, I suppose, is, you know, one of the one of the best things I've ever done. It was one of the best days of my life. Um, and to perform pretty well, um, I think I took four wickets in the first innings, one in the second, and was undismissed in both innings. So, But I will put a disclosure there. I did bat at 10. So I may have got 16 and one not out. 
And I think I almost batted at number 11 in the second innings because we needed a night watchman and they were going to send in Hilf, who batted behind me because they had, and rightfully so, had no trust in me getting through the night if I walked into bat. Well, there we go. The other, there's another couple of things I think I want to talk about, Evan. You, you actually uh, were the recipient of the Ricky Ponting Medal uh, in in one of the seasons. Um, and what did you do to to, to earn this uh, very very high honour? Oh, I got I got pretty lucky. Um, I had a really good one day tournament. So obviously, so the Ricky Ponting Medal is Tasmania's best player. Um, and there's two medals that are under that, um, the one-day player and the shield player. Um, I won the one-day player and I, and I had a really good tournament. So I had I had some good credits going into the shield season. But I actually, I remember I played the last game before the Big Bash break. So we have a, over Christmas, um, we play the Big Bash. And I got my high score, which was 80. And I, I remember I got a couple of wickets or three wickets in the first innings against WA and then got 80. I came in at seven for 50 and I was batting with Luke Butterworth, who was a fantastic player. And we put on 150. I got 80 off 70 balls, pretty much just going the longer we bat, the less we have to bowl because we we're pretty cooked. And um, then got a couple of wickets in the second innings as well. So we lost the game, but I got really good votes for that game. But what happened was, because I had such a bad big bash, I didn't play the next four Shield games because they said I was out of form. Um, and I had to go back and play some... I was 12th man for every game um, and I had to play a, a few second 11 games and things like that. And then um, I had a, a pretty good game in the last game where I got maximum votes and ended up pipping the award. Now, what was actually, I found out later, was they'd already printed the award weeks in advance and they had to redo everything because the only person that could have potentially passed who who was going to be the winner was myself and I was out of the team at the time so they were worried that they wouldn't actually have any awards to to give out on the night but um they eventually found their way there so um yeah it's pretty cool and and to to be up on the board um along some pretty good names um is you know an, another um, another fantastic thing that I've got in my career that I'll probably look back on in a few years' time and enjoy. Well, we did, as I say, you know, you've been a good sport. We did talk about a few of your <laughs> less proud, uh, you know, achievements and records, shall we say. There are a, there are a couple of, of, of very impressive ones that I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to make you uh, discuss. The first is you actually hold a, a very impressive one for a lower order batter in shield cricket. And I believe this may also be your highest score. Um, unless I'm mistaken, do, do you want to tell us what that is? Um, well, I actually have the highest score by a number eight batter in first class cricket in Australia. Um, and that was in that last game that I talked about where I got maximum votes. Um, the only person to have a higher first class score at number eight is Wazim Akram. Got 250 in a game. I think it was a county game um, and would have hit 56 or something ridiculous like that. Um, but I got 229 um, and eclipsed. I think it was 150 was the highest score previously. So that was pretty cool to get my first and my only, you know, first class 100 was pretty cool. Um, was batting with the, when I passed it, I was batting with a, a good mate of mine and um, captain of Australia currently, Tim Payne. So that was pretty cool in itself. Um, but to go on and get 200, you know, was was awesome. And then um, got four for seven in the second innings. One wicket in the first and four for seven in the second inning. So it was a pretty um, pretty amazing game. 
what was probably the most disappointing part about it was it was the last game of the season, so I couldn't go on with it. Um, so to have a whole pre-season feeling like, you know, you're at top of your game but not actually been able to do anything wasn't great. But And I, I don't think I started the next season very well. So it would have been nice to have a couple more games or, or not miss the, the four games in between, you know, that and the previous game that I played. So, But that was my career. I had a lot of in-outs um, and I think, you know, I've learnt a lot from that experience and I think it'll it'll hold me in good stead later on with, with the coaching that I'm doing. You know, to play that, well, it wasn't easy to play as an in-out player because you feel like you've got every game is, or every moment that you play is the most important moment of your career and it's very hard to play with freedom and play at your best when that's the case. And I know that that's one thing that I try and um, help the other guys and, and a lot of coaches don't understand that because a lot of coaches are, are gun X players and they understand the game and all that sort of stuff but they don't understand what it's like to be the person that is playing for their life because they've never done it um, or they haven't done a, a lot of it so I suppose I, I get a lot of I, I get a lot of pleasure out of saying that I was able to perform on that day being that person that played for their career nearly every game. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear your sort of point of view about that. And and I think, um, and like you say, you know, there are a lot of gun ex-players who, who are now coaches out there. And, and just having that kind of mental approach is, is um, you know, is, is something that can, like you say, hold you in good stead when it comes to kind of communicating the different sides of, of the mental approach to the game um, to other players. And I know, obviously, you know, you spoke about this earlier um, a little bit with people like Cal and, and Path being young uh, young players of the team, and 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 I know you sort of you know feel like you you kind of had uh, had had uh, an opportunity to kind of help um, you know progress a young team when you were at Macclesfield, and and is that something you think that also is is probably going to help you with 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 regards to progressing in coaching and that sort of thing? Oh, definitely, and you know having those experiences, obviously, um, as I said, I'm a qualified teacher, so I'm already into that sort of area of you know, trying to help people and um, and help learning and facilitate learning, I suppose. But, you know, being able to work with those guys when I was at such a young age myself probably helped me mature very quickly about, you know, what it's like to be in their shoes. And I think that's the greatest thing that you can have as a coach or as a leader is actually have, you don't need to have sympathy for someone, but to have great empathy for understanding their their position and how they would feel and what you would feel in that position yourself you know, it just it just helps you portray the right messages, I think. Hopefully the guys at Carlton that I'm working with at the moment get that. Now the, the last uh, the last little little thing I wanted to feature is obviously, you know, you you've mentioned Big Bash cricket and you've you've played quite a bit of Big Bash cricket over the years and, you know, you've bowled a lot batted a bit but one of the other nice records uh, that I believe you you have and you can correct me if I'm wrong but I think you've got the uh, one of the highest scores for a number seven batsman in in big bash cricket is that right well it actually has been passed but I was the first batter at number seven to get a 50 so that was I did have that record and I do still have one but um I've lost one and as I said you know the I've got records, as you said, I suppose. Uh, I've got records for good and bad. So I'm a, I'm a good crossword puzzle answer, I suppose. But, you know, like I think that, you know, my time in Big Bash, I, I, look, I, I did some pretty cool things, but there's a lot of games where I did not match. So, you know, um, to have, you know, a couple of players in my pocket like Chris Gale and Kyron Pollard and Mike Hussey, you know, like they're, they're pretty cool. And, and to make some runs in a few days and 
you know, hit a few sixes, including uh, one Joffre Archer, which I'll mention, um, which was pretty cool. Um, and he bowls pretty fast. So, you know, like I've done some cool stuff, but I've also done a lot of not not great stuff as well. So I suppose, you know, you gotta you got to live, you got to enjoy the moments that you do well because, you know, 90% of the cricket, you go home disappointed because, you know, you've gotten out. Like even if you get 100, you still get out most of the time. So you still think you could do better. Um, if you take five, you wanted to take six. So there's lots of... Lots of elements where you actually go home slightly disappointed. But, you know, I suppose it's a little bit like golf. If you hit a birdie on the last hole, it brings you back. Well, I'm uh, I'm always keen to avoid playing golf. So we'll, we'll leave the golf chat there. But um, <laughs> the, the other the other thing that you, you kind of just teed me up and, and, and made me remember briefly is, um, you know, talking about having, having faced a few quick bowlers in, in BBL cricket and stuff like that. You've, um, you, I mean, you've been, you've been clocked at, at, at a not, and not slow by any means, sort of 144-ish, 145 kilometres an hour, which in English money is, is getting on for 89, 90 miles an hour. I just wondered, bearing in mind that, you know, you've, you've got those kinds of speeds in, in the book, talk me through the fact that you bowled very little for Macclesfield. And, and, and if anything, this, this surely can be nothing but a reflection on, on Barney Cutbill's captaincy. Do you, do you have any uh, inflammatory comments to make about that? Well, no, I think you're totally correct. You know, Barney just underbowled me, like, and and I think all my captains underbowled me until I became a bowler. Um, no, of course not. I I think when I was coming through, I I did have a lot of back issues as a as a I suppose a young player coming through. Nothing like bad, but I just couldn't probably get strong enough or fit enough to be able to do it consistently well. And also, I think at the time, a lot of guys. Well, a lot of the, my captains said that I bowled too short um, rather than looking like someone like a Neil Wagner type thing now where he bowls, he doesn't bowl like on the, on the speed gun, he doesn't bowl quick, but he bowls a lot of energy and a lot of effort and some good bounces. I was a little bit more that, that mould and I suppose in, in terms of the Macclesfield side of it, on those wickets, it just doesn't work because it's a bit slow. Uh, the wickets are a bit slow and it just sits up and you get pounded. Um, and the second year... I'd actually, because I wasn't bowling at Carlton, I didn't want to charge in at, at training and waste all my energy. So I started trying to bowl off spin and be the second spinner. So my second year at Mac, I actually bowled off spin. And I think I took more wickets than what I did the first year. So I actually applaud Barney's captaincy for giving me a bowl when I was actually bowling off spin and I wasn't a very good off spinner. And I will bring up, I did take a wicket bowling left arm orthodox as well. So <laughs> I will put it out there that I played a Sunday game and I remember the first two balls of the over bowling off spin. I used to bowl moon balls and just let them hole out on the fence. And I got hit for six or four or something. And then I went, oh, now stuff this. I'm coming in. I'm coming in off the long run. And I tried to bowl seam up and I got hit for two more boundaries. And then I thought, oh, I'll just bowl left arm to finish the over. And I bowled a long hop and the bloke nicked it. So I, people won't remember it because it was a Sunday game and probably didn't mean anything. And everyone was, you know, probably a bit hungover. But um, I actually took a wicket bowling left arm orthodox. So there you go. Well, I, I think probably for anyone's benefit, I won't be able to find that on the uh, on the on the <laughs> on the Blake Cricket Scorecard. I suppose you're going to cut that bit out as well, aren't you? No, not at all. I will leave that in for its glory. As much as it pains me, the fact that you did actually defend <laughs> Barney Cutbill, I was rather hoping you were going to give him a spray. But um, anyway, 
as much as I've alluded to, you know, we can't talk about too many things from from your max stats in 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 hardcore scorecards. Um, one thing we can do is is talk about your stats from Australia, um, with with you know specifically with Carlton Cricket Club, who you know, as you say, you're you're the coach and also the captain of. What I thought I'd do is run through your uh, stats for my cricket, um, which are as follows: you have played uh, four hundred and twenty nine matches. Scoring 12,002 runs and you average 35.9 with a highest score of 229. And you also have 358 wickets at an average of 24.6 with a best bowling of 6 for 45. I kind of now just want to talk a little bit about Carlton and and you know your experiences there and and obviously we've we've heard from um, you know Rossi and and, uh, and and a little bit of Chuck about Carlton but is there anything you want to sort of tell us about Carlton Cricket Club and, and your experiences? Oh look, um, Carlton Cricket Club, along with I suppose my couple of years in Mac, of maybe what I am today, and um, you know I suppose for society it's probably not a good thing, but. I owe everything that I've done, um, I suppose, in my cricket to to the people that have been at Carlton Cricket Club. Um, and I suppose where I'm at at the moment, it's about creating um, a legacy that the Carlton can go forward on and, and leave the club in a better position than it was when, when I came along. Um, I, I remember we were, I think, 13th on the ladder my first year uh, when I debuted. Um, and then Chuck came in along with, as I said, Peter Divinuto and, and Warren Ayres as the last coach. And, um, you know, we won, a, we won a flag two years ago. Um, we were in, a, I think, a really good position going forward when um, the coronavirus stopped our season. So um, we missed out on a, an opportunity there. But we also won um, the National T20 Comp last year. We won the Victorian T20 Comp last year. Uh, so the um, yeah last season um, and you know going forward I think we've got some really good young players um, so I suppose where I'm at now is just trying to make the place um, the best it can be I've probably got you know I, I do live in a different state to where to to Carlton where I'm playing so it is it is um, a big commitment but I suppose that commitment shows how much I love the place and how much the place means to me so um, to be able to, you know, hopefully leave it in a in a good um, in a good space in a few years' time when I finish up um, is my aim. Well, you, you've mentioned the uh, the grand final that that Carlton won, not the season that's just passed, because obviously coronavirus uh, denied you the opportunity to do so. But the the season before that, you know, Carlton had a successful run to the grand final. I do want to talk about the grand final game just because obviously Nick Ross has already mentioned it, and you know, you you had a bit of an innings in it to say to say the least. However, before we get to that, I think it would be it would be fair to point out that you were you were pretty instrumental in in kind of getting Carlton to the final as well because you know you showed up uh you showed up pretty well in in the semi-final do, do you want to tell us briefly about that performance before we get to the grand final yeah well look before I say that I think based on what I've learned in cricket we really had a plan with Carlton that year to make sure everyone was in good nick going to the final so um a lot of our players didn't necessarily get the same opportunities all year um so there was games where I batted myself a bit lower or um you know uh didn't really, you know, take the opportunities. We bowled certain guys to make sure that they were right to go. And it really came good at the back end of the year where everyone was in good nick. And it was just about creating an environment where if someone had a good day, they'd win us a game. We had, you know, seven guys with the bat that could play match-winning innings. And 
you know, four or five bowlers with the ball that could, you know, bolster victory. So to have a game where we got to the finals and then to be able to stand up, I suppose, you know, that was, you know, the biggest thing to me. Um, you know, I am the, the, I was the captain at the time um, and to stand up and get the job done. We, we were in a bit of strife with the bat um, and to bat through and I think I got out off the very last ball of the innings before we had to, um, or not declare, but it's um, compulsory closure. Um, for 130 was um, was one of my better innings that I'd ever played. Um, to be able to bat with the tail and um, get us through, that was great. And then to come out and before I'd even bowled to run their best batter out from the boundary where I actually t- was right in front of their race and been able to turn around and pretty much give them all a bake and then to come on and take um, six wickets after that was pretty cool. Um, but I do owe a little bit of a shout out to uh, Cameron Stevenson, who you guys might not know, but we were able to get the ball reversing and it was raining. So to be able to get the ball reversing in the wet is a pretty amazing effort. And he was um, he was the chief shiner that day. Um, so I do owe a little bit of a shout out to him. But, you know, to get the job done, um, to get 130 and six wickets in a game was, was pretty cool. Um, I'd only ever taken... Oh, I'd only ever taken five for and gotten 100 in one game before that. Um, so, you know, to do it on the big stage or the, the second biggest stage was pretty cool. Well, that's basically how you got to the grand final. And, and obviously, you know, you, you, you turned up uh, in that semi-final. And I think it's also fair to say you, you more than turned up in the grand final itself, as, as Rossi alluded to. So this is obviously uh, 2019 season. This is the 5th of April. Obviously, with the grand final, it's a three-day game between Carlton and Geelong, who um, Khaled played for way back when. <laughs> and Geelong um, won the toss and batted first, and they posted 409 for nine declared. And obviously, Rossi mentioned, um, you know, in in his podcast that you know your bowlers absolutely bowled their heart out on a, on a, on a tough uh, a tough wicket, and a, a couple of their lads got hundreds. Um, firstly, what do you remember about the, the Geelong innings, and and you know, were you were you pleased with with what you kept them to and, and just generally your feelings about how that went. The Junction Ovals where Victoria, it's their new hub outside the MCG and um, it's it's an amazing facility and it's a very good batting wicket. Um, they had the Shield final there the week before and Victoria beat New South Wales. Now they had a they had a bit of a debate whether to go the extra bowler and play James Pattinson along with um, Tremaine Boland Siddle um, or whether they were going to go drop one of those bowlers and play an extra batter and try and draw the game. Now, they chose to play Pato and they played on the, the result wicket. So they made two wickets and we found out after the second day that they'd actually played this, the, the district final that we were on was supposed to be a drawn shielded final wicket. So we knew it was going to be a belter to bat on on the last day, the third day, because it was supposed to hold up for five days the week before. Um and we only found that out during the second day because one of the one of the um, parents was listening to the they had a live stream and was listening to the commentary, and someone from Cricket Victoria actually dropped it. So we went into that last day knowing that the wicket was not going to break up. It was a fantastic flat wicket to bat on, and if we actually played well, as much as it was four hundred and ten runs we needed to win, um, it was actually gettable. Um, our bowlers bowled unbelievable. I, I just think that the wicket allowed and and. Geelong made 400 the week before as well. They were, they were in very good form. They had some very good players. Um, two guys got 100. And, you know, I, I think 
the one thing that does go unmentioned um, is we bowled something like nearly 40 overs in the middle session on day one at two and over. And we, we, had a, we had a mentality at that time where we were just going to bowl as dry as we can and get through as many overs as quick as possible because we knew that Geelong would have to declare at some stage to set the game up and we might take some wickets when they teed off. Um, so for the boys to actually do that um, was a phenomenal effort because to get through 40 overs in, in two hours, um, you know, it's, it's almost unheard of this day and age. So, you know, I, I, I was really happy with how the guys went. Look, getting 400, we had two options, either get the runs or try and bat for the remaining overs um, to, to collect the title. So I thought the boys did as well as they could. It would have been nice to take a few more chances. of. Um, we dropped a few and a couple of run-out chances, which could have made it a bit easier. Well, I think it's uh, it's key to point out there that um, I assume because you were going into the to the grand final as sort of as the higher-ranked team, you actually only needed to draw the game. So the win the win wasn't necessary for in order to secure the grand final. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, yeah, we looked at it and went, the longer they keep batting, the less we have to do. Um, but in saying that, we knew that because we've got a lot of shot players, we've got guys that have played BBL cricket in our in our top order, we knew that if we actually bat those overs, we'll probably get them anyway. But again, it, it sort of forced their hand a little bit. Now, if we if we had been the bottom-ranked team, we probably would have taken the new ball. Uh, we didn't take the new ball at all. We, um, we just bowled with the same ball the whole way through to try and make it harder to hit. So, you know, we could have done tactically a lot of different things if we had been foot on the um our shoe on the other foot i suppose mm-hmm. well that being said you you didn't play out for the draw and um you actually got the runs um in in no small part to yourself um with yourself scoring 148 not out of 202 balls do you want to just kind of talk us through through the innings from from your point of view obviously we heard before that that nick ross got 50 off 142 balls batting five um and yourself you know, batted. Uh, sorry, Nick Ross batted four that day, and yourself batted five. Obviously, with yourself batting through, as I said. Um, yeah. Do you, do you want to just tell us about the the innings um, from from your perspective? Yeah. Um, well, basically, how we set up and how we structured up our team was to to let the guys that like to face lots of balls bat at the top, and then it, it allowed myself and um, people like Maka Harvey, who's um, you know a young player coming through under nineteen, captain of Australia, and BBL cricketer um, to be able to go and play our shots. So, you know, guys like Rossi, who, you know, fantastic player, as you boys would know, um, you know, to bat for long periods of time. Now, he faced nearly 200 balls. Um, our number three nearly faced 200 balls as well. So, and they both got 50, and that set the game up for us. So, it allowed myself and uh, Maka Harvey and then the other guys to come in um, when the, the bowlers were a little bit more worn out. Um, they only had four bowlers as well, whereas we actually go in, the, we, we went into the game with four quicks and two spinners. So we actually had set up, you know, the game to our to our liking, I suppose, with those guys performing so well. What didn't go to plan was um, on the third day, we were only um, two down at stumps going into the third day and Nick and Harry, who was batting it through and got um, got 50, actually got out in the first, oh, I don't know, maybe half an hour. So it put us under the pump and obviously myself and and the other boys got us there in the end. But basically it was more about just trying to almost zone out and just think, oh, like, because we, we still needed 200 runs, from, well, 220 runs or something like that at that stage. And it was a little bit like, if I look at the total, I'm just going to get out. Whereas if I just like, try and zone out and watch the ball you know you're we actually 
like batted without any, it was almost like batting without care for a while because we just thought we're under the pump that much. We're just going to tune out and just bat how we would normally bat. And then we got ourselves into a position where we could win the game. And, um, and I think at the end, you know, um, Geelong felt that and we just kept going about our work and, you know, to perform again well on the big stage. It was probably, oh, it would be my best innings other than my, um, my shield innings, I, I would have thought. Um, but to get the job done at a club that, you know, I've spent the best part of my life at um, when we'd had, I think, a 37-year um, break between between um, premierships was phenomenal. We've been, a, we've been a club, especially over the last 10 to 15 years when I've been involved, a very high-performing club in terms of position on the ladder but not, not getting any silverware. So to actually stand up and um, be the one that got us over the line um, means a lot. And, um, to win, to win the player of the, the final, which was the, the medals awarded after a, a bloke called John Scholes, who was a premier legend, um, legend of the Carlton Cricket Club as well. And he was actually my junior coach um, or my junior batting coach for five years until he passed away, um, meant so much. So, um, yeah, I suppose it was along with along with um, you know the Shield final and, and getting a double hundred in a, in a Shield game, it, it's definitely up there with, you know the best moments of my life. Well, Evan, we are uh, we're coming towards the uh, the end of the podcast here, and and you know as with everyone, we want to try with the quick fire questions. So we'll give it a whirl and and see what you come up with. All right, I'm a bit worried about these. <laughs> I can talk. I can talk cricket. I can talk stats all my life, but to to name uh, to nail these will be be hard work. Oh uh, well, I'm sure with a crafty bit of editing it, it won't appear like it don't worry <laughs> right here we go nickname gobbler um but i've had about a million like tickets and all those sort of things so yeah, yeah but I'll, I'll stay with gobbler left or right-handed i'm right-handed battle bowl well I'll, wait wait first i'll say i'm right-handed but i took a wicket bowling left arm so i'm both <laughs> ambidextrous excellent battle bowl <laughs> which year um <laughs> i wouldn't have a clue neither fielding position Long boundary. Test or T20? Test. Best cricketer you've played with? People put money on this question because I have to say Ricky Ponting. Um, and I always always have to name drop as well. I'm actually drinking a Ponting Tino right now, so there you go. But I also have to mention Kevin Peterson in, t- in terms of T20 cricket. He was pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Uh, fastest bowler you've faced? Uh, Toss-up between Jofra Archer... Mitchell Johnson, Mitchell Stark. Right, I'm I'm going to go off piece here just because I'm genuinely interested about this. How how quick is Jofra? Uh, it depends which ball he bowls because I don't know if many guys have watched the test, um, the documentary on the Australian cricket team. Mm-hmm. But as Matthew Wade talks about, who played with him at the Hurricanes, um, he's got balls that come out at 140 and 155 that don't look any different. Um, and it's very hard to pick up. So I know, for example, the ball I took him downtown back over his head, he wasn't very quick, but the next ball was very, very, very fast. So um, I think he took me a little bit. He underestimated if he bowled slot that I might be able to reach the boundary. Right. Well, thank you for that deviation, and I'll I'll take it on the chin for that. That was that was definitely me and not you. Messiest in the dressing room. I think maybe we should go Mac here. Yeah, okay. So th- this is an easy one. Yoza. I don't know if it was because he was very nervous or whether it was a very old pair of knickers that he used to wear. <laughs> Longest in the shower. Martin Tunwell. 
obviously. Um, too many games. First thing on your plate at teas? Uh, pizza. Pizza. We have, those teas were immaculate. They were so good. A <laughs> little bit different to what you get in Australia, I believe. Uh, Carlton's pretty good, but not. it's different level. Drink of choice? Uh, right now, Ponting Pinot Noir, but um, generally over there was Bexvia. Um, and we actually made a few songs about it during the time. Justin Perring and I, he was um, one of my good friends the first year. We used to sing songs about Bexvia. Excellent. Takeaway of choice? Geo's. Uncle Geo's. So we used to do the big order or on the night out, rather than pay for the cab home, I'd pick up a Geo's and walk 40 minutes to Bollington to the church house with my geos and finish it on the way home. So um, it actually helped me sober up a little bit too. So yeah, Uncle Geo. That is outstanding commitment to the pizza, I have to say. <laughs> I do love my pizza. Dance move of choice. Oh, I don't really have one, but there is, I did I did learn, learn a move where you grab someone's hand and you, you spin it around their back and then wrap it around your head and they end up giving you a cuddle. Um, that was tried to be used a lot and it got two reactions either um, a very nice reaction or a bit of a slap so um, it was hit and miss a bit like my career <laughs> so you're making comparisons between your dance moves and your cricketing career that's how it's... oh yeah it was all all or nothing <laughs> three dream dinner guests who are they um okay uh lebron james mm-hmm. uh tiger woods yep and to add a bit of spice I'll bring in Dan Blazarian, if anyone oh, knows who he is. Wow, yeah. Um, yeah, just to add a little bit of... He'll, he'll get the party going with the two great dinner guests. Very, very good. Uh, I, I like it. These these three dream dinner guest questions do throw up some, some interesting answers. Well, I was almost going to say, can I just bring two, bring him and let him bring a spare? Um, because that could be interesting as well. Uh, yes, and for those that don't know anything about Dan Blazarian, I encourage you to uh, to look him up, shall we say. Or discourage you to look him up. Well, yeah, quite. Uh, I think equal measure, in fact. Um, thank you for a bit of censorship there from Mr. Evan Golbis. Who knew? I thought it would be the other way round, but there we are. <laughs> <laughs> Gobbler, um, any, anything you want to say and, and closing remarks um, before, before we head off? Uh, not really. I just... I, I, look... Um, Macclesfield's a wonderful place. Um, I owe a lot to, I suppose, my maturity these days, which is still not great. But um, I, uh, look, I, I love the place. Um, hope to get back there one day. Um, hopefully, we can continue a long Carlton Macclesfield relationship. Obviously, sad that um, during the COVID, um, Jack wasn't able to go over this season, but hopefully. You know, in due course, he'll, he'll get to be able to go over there and experience the, the, you know, the great place that I got to experience myself. I owe a lot to uh, to Macclesfield. So, um, look, I can only wish everyone there the best and hope that um, hope that everyone's safe and happy. Evan, I'm sure everyone here would send, uh, you know, their best wishes and and thanks for for appearance on the podcast back to you. Um, and needless to say, I'm sure we look forward to to seeing you in due course whenever you do make it over. Thank you very much from me. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll speak soon. Thanks, Miles. Cheers. Macclesfield Cricket Club would like to send their condolences to Stuart Brohaska following the death of his wife, Lydia, on Friday, the 22nd of May, aged just 36. Stuart was the club's overseas player in 2005 when he lived with Dan and April Ackerley. Stuart completely embraced the values of the club. He was very popular with his teammates and opponents alike and remains part of the Macclesfield Cricket Club family. Stuart met Lydia 
who is from Wakefield, in 2010. He introduced her to the club on a visit a few years later, and she was an instant hit. They married in the UK in 2016, at a service attended by three former first-team captains, Danny, Yoz, and Bod. Unfortunately, in October 2018, Lydia was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain tumour called glioblastoma multiform. After many ups and downs, and without ever giving up, Lydia lost her brave battle last week, surrounded by her family. Lydia was caring, honest, bright, witty and beautiful. She was a truly remarkable woman. Our thoughts at this time are with Stuart, both families and all those affected by this devastating news.